welcome to the Afterlife Files, where we investigate near-death experiences, shared-death experiences, and how they affect you. Unlike podcasts that are just stories, we will give you a heads up on what to look for in our conversation. And then after the interview, stick around. We'll help you make sense of those accounts so that you can incorporate the insights into your life. I think you'll find this video will help you answer some of the most profound questions so that you can live life in the physical filled with more peace and joy. I was doing some research on Edgar Cayce and found Stephen A. Schwartz, a scholar who had dedicated a considerable amount of his life researching and thinking about how Edgar Cayce described the nature of consciousness. I watched his presentation at the Vail Symposium and was blown away with how Edgar Cayce, near-death and shared-death experiencers were talking about the same thing. Each used a slightly different vocabulary, but their conclusions are identical. I just had to have him on the Afterlife Files for you. Our interview begins with two remarkable quotes, one by Mac Plunk and the other by Albert Einstein. They will make you think and make you smile. Stefan is an experimentalist. I appreciate that he didn't spend time trying to figure out if access to non-local consciousness was real. He focused instead on how it worked and how to make it more effective individually. And then Stefan spends the last segment of the interview on how we can change the direction of our culture to be more compassionate, life-affirming, and focused on fostering the well-being of everyone because of the nature of consciousness. In the middle of the interview, Stefan talks about how religion re arose because of the nature of consciousness. It's a fascinating insight. Sidebar, this is a heads up. Stefan and I tried to conduct this interview three times. Each time the internet connection was shaky, and it's slightly so on this one too, but don't let that distract you. The audio track is good, and what he has to say is so important that you may want to watch or listen to this interview a couple of times. I'm on my sixth. <laughs> There's that much inference that can be teased out of his insights. Here is a terrific interview with Stefan A. Schwartz. Well, hi, Stefan. Really great to have you here on the Afterlife Files. My pleasure. You know, you are famous for saying everything is a manifestation of consciousness. So how did you get from a young man with ordinary values to this kind of enlightened um, observation of the world? Tell us your story. <laughs> well, I read Max Planck's interview in 1931 in the published in the Observer newspaper. Planck, as you know, the father of quantum mechanics. Yep. Didn't give a lot of interviews. 
So they were very glad to get one from him. And the reporter that the Observer editor had sent to the to do the interview said Planck, you know, you and Einstein are the most famous scientists in the world. What have you learned? And I think he probably expected to get an answer about molecules and atoms and, you know, whatever. But instead, what he, what he got was Planck said, uh, what I have learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. This is a quote, actually. Uh, consciousness is, is causal and fundamental. Space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time, which was the materialist physiological idea that all consciousness is physiologically based in the brain. He said consciousness uh, arises, uh, space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. And I, I read this when I was at university, at University of Virginia, and it stuck with me. And then Einstein had a similar interview in which they asked him, you know, what do you understand about reality? And he says, it's an optical delusion. I like the delusion. I love that. An optical delusion. Yeah, I like delusion. that part too. And uh, so then I was through a, a strange series of synchronicities, I was introduced to the Edgar Cayce material. Mm -hmm. And I decided after I had looked at it, because the first ex exposure I had to it I opened up at random, just literally, I was taken to the ARE and, and uh, the organization that grew up around me. And I pulled off the shelf one of the readings. I didn't even know what a reading was. I, I didn't know anything about any of this. And I read this reading and it was given in 1936. Okay. For a woman. And he said she had been a member of the Essene community at Kerbet Qumran and a teacher of astrology. And I've got to tell you, Scott, it is possible for your hair to stand on end. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I was, uh, I had just recently uh, come out of the service and uh, the army had been drafted uh, when I was working for National Geographic. And the last thing I had done for National Geographic before I went into the service was research on the Dead Sea Scrolls for an article that we were going to do. Oh, sure. And I knew that in 1936, not a single person on Earth knew that the Essene community was at Kerbet Qumran, or that women were involved with the community, or that they had any particular interest in astrology. But all of that is true. In 1947, 11 years after Casey had given this reading, a young Bedouin tribes boy had been chucking rocks into a cave that he saw, and he heard something go clunk, and he went down into the cave to see what it was and discovered what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we know from the scrolls of the obsession they had with astrology and we know that, in fact, the uh, Kerbet Qumran, which was at that time 
thought to be nothing more than a minor outpost of the Emperor Vespasian, was in fact an Essene community, nobody knew that, and excavation revealed that there were female skeletons, so women had been a part of it. Most of what anybody knew about the Essenes was that Josephus, an ancient historian, had had said they were a schismatic order of monks, of Jewish monks. So he didn't mention anything about women, so nobody knew there were women. And what I realized as I read this thing, which I had just randomly, serendipitously pulled off the shelf, how could a man possibly know something 11 years before it was discovered and anybody knew it? And that set me in motion to what has become the interest of my life, and that is the study of the nature of consciousness. I am an experimentalist, that's an important point, because I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a, a theoretician, uh, I don't speculate, um, I'm not a theologian in that sense. I care about experimental, objectively verifiable data. And what that has taught me over the last 60 years since I started on this was that consciousness is, as Trump, as, as, Trump, as Planck said, causal and fundamental. What we're dealing with in reality is an information construct in space-time created by intentioned consciousness and that there is continuity of consciousness that is, you existed prior to incarnation and you, not you as a personality, but you as the eternal self, what religion calls the soul, uh, will continue and that you will episodically manifest another personality and that personality will come in informed by informational structure which will even impact your genetics um, in a subsequent life. And my experimental research, because as I say, I'm an experimentalist, I get to that not because I think it's lovely or it's religious or it's spiritual or any of that, but because that's what the evidence shows us. The problem with materialism is that they don't like the evidence, so they don't look at it. But the fact is yeah. that Consciousness does not entirely repose in the brain. It is not entirely physiologically based. And you're also talking about information. Uh, you called it, it um, is, is constructed. It's in a construct. Can you go talk a little more about that? Well, the two great mystery questions to me are what is information? And what is consciousness? Uh -huh. And I don't know the answer to either one of those questions, and nobody else does either. Because I know most of the people that do this kind of research, and I don't know anybody that knows the answer to those two questions. What I can say is that it is clear if you look at the evidence, again, this is all evidence-based, that what is the fundamental in the construct of what we call reality is information. 
that um, when you when you have physically died, but your consciousness continues, it's not in a place. That is, it's not a question of where is it, because where is a is a space time word. Mm -hmm. Got it. But it does continue to exist. And we know from the reincarnational work where people uh, incarnate from an earlier life with birthmarks or scar tissue or wound uh, tissue, uh, uh, you know, uh, wound uh, healing from an earlier life event. So what comes across between those incarnations? It's not something physical. And it's not something that was in space time. It was information. And that this information shapes your choice of parents, your choice of race, your choice of socioeconomic background, your choice of geographical location. And it also you bring across remembered patterns of behavior and activity that that come from earlier times and that we incarnate in order to deal with informational patterns which are created through the choices we make and so once you begin to see that then you have a very different view of of the world because you realize that the most important thing you can do in your life is to foster well-being at every level, from the smallest bacteria to human beings, that the fostering of well-being creates the greatest harmony and the greatest success. It's the most efficient, the most productive, and it's by far the cheapest choice you can make. And so my life has been dedicated first to experimentation and then to exploring how individuals and small groups can change the course of history to foster compassionate, life-affirming well-being. So you mentioned that um, this information architecture that carries on between our different lives um, was very intentional that we we chose this life. We we chose how we're going to come in and who our parents are. I think I think that's a, a a profound way to look at it. That this architecture is created by our intentioned consciousness. Yes, we know experimentally, for instance, that consciousness alone can can cause an effect in physical reality. I mean, to give you an example of the kind of experiments I'm talking about, uh, for instance, an experiment that I did, I had people do healing, therapeutic intention. Okay. And while they did it, I put on the palms of their hands little vials, little hermetically sealed vials, glass vials, which contained water that I literally was so pure, it would have been dangerous to drink it. I it didn't know there was such a thing. 
Okay. Well, it was made out of the gases that uh, literally I had the I had the gases combined to make the water. And it was put in these little vials, and using infrared spectrophotometry, we measured the vials: five-minute vial, ten-minute vial, fifteen-minute vial. Because at the time that I did the experiment, everybody thought that the longer you did the healing intention, the, the bigger the effect. That turns out not to be true. But in any case, uh, I measured using infrared spectrophotometry. I measured the difference between the molecular structure of the water that was exposed to the healing while they were doing the healing and the control vials, which were in another building in another place, uh, which had not been exposed to healing. And what we saw was, to a very highly significant degree, the water that was exposed to healing, and it had to do with the hydrogen-oxygen bonding relationship, uh, was, was molecularly different than the water that was the control vial. Another kind of experiment that makes this point Dean Radin, a researcher at Noetics, did two experiments, one involving chocolate, where he took got a bar of chocolate and he broke it in two and he had Buddhist monks focus their intention on the half that, of the chocolate and the other half of the chocolate was kept in another place and didn't get any attention. And he had people eat the chocolate and then report how happy they were. And the people who ate the chocolate, now the people who had the control chocolate, they ate it too. But the people who got the treated chocolate were happier than the people who got the um, control chocolate. And he did the same thing with tea. He got a bunch of tea and he had the Buddhist monks focused the healing on it or intention on it and had people drink the tea and those people that had the, the treated tea had a different reaction to people who had to control tea. And then I got interested in another experiment that I did. I wondered why water and wine are so involved with religions around the world. I wondered that too, since it was Jesus's first miracle. Yes. Why exactly. did Why did he choose wine for the first miracle? Exactly. Why water? Why wine? Uh huh. Well, the answer is, I I got a, a bunch. I I told you the water experiment. That how holy water gets created is the act of intention of the priest if he is sufficiently conscious to know what he's doing and just wasting his time, you know, just going through a protocol that what makes holy water is the same thing that when the healers did the healing of people and they had the little vials of water on their hand, it changed the molecular structure of the water and holy water is an example of how a priest holding intention to consciousness changes the structure of the water. Now, I also wondered about wine. Why wine? And the answer, I think, is I went out and I uh, got 
the kind of wine you would, the, the good quality wine, a Cabernet, that you would take, for instance, to a friend's dinner party. Okay. Uh, you know, $20 a bottle of wine. And I went to, I went to uh, seven friends of mine over a period of several years. And I said to them, I didn't tell them anything about the background. Um, I said to them, I am about to buy a big quantity of wine and, you know, it's expensive and, and I want to make sure I'm doing the best. Would you hold a, a taste testing for me? and have invited at least seven people to come in and taste the wines. I'm going to give you the two candidates that I'm that I've gotten down to. I've looked at a whole bunch of wines and I've gotten down to two candidates. Now, the truth is not a word of that was true. In fact, I had bought one bottle of wine and I split it into two parts. You know, wine is 750 milliliters. And I split it into two bottles of 375 milliliters. And I took one of the bottles to a group of meditators. And I said, I'm going to put this wine on a chair uh, in front of you. You're in a circle. And I want you to focus healing intention on this wine. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. And so I randomly assigned, uh, using a random number generator, I assigned which would be the treated wine, which would be the control wine. So I didn't choose that. I was randomly selected. I had them hold that for 20 minutes to focus healing intention on this wine. And then I took the two bottles, the two 375 milliliter bottles that I had, and I uh, took them over to the taste testing party. I was not physically there. I left and I gave it, let's say it was you. And I would say, well, Scott, here are my two candidates. And I've decanted them into two different bottles so that you can't see the labels so that nobody has any bias that, you know, there's not going to be, oh, well, I know that wine. That's the one, that kind of thing. So just two unlabeled bottles. Yeah, and I hear and here are seven glasses exactly the same so that the glasses don't affect anything. And would you please decant the wine into these glasses, two glasses per person and have seven people um, pick which is the better wine. And, and I'm going to make my purchase on that basis. And I didn't tell you I was doing this with six other people who were having the same kind of testing thing. Yeah. And, I, and so you invited seven of your friends in and you said to them, okay, I've got a friend who wants to make this big wine buy and he's gotten it down to two candidates and he asks us to test it. And so I've laid it out and the glasses are all the same so that there's no difference. And I've decanted, uh, you know, a, a portion into each glass, same portion. Uh, so would you taste them for me? and tell me which you think is the best wine. And in all but one case, they picked the treated wine. Something had changed in the structure 
of the wine or maybe just at the informational level, not in the physical level, that made that wine tastier. Just as Dean Radin's experiment with the chocolate and the tea, where he split the chocolate bar or he split the tea into two, you know, two groups, two loose tea. And the people had a more positive reaction to one than the other, and it was always the treated one. And so the reason that water and wine are involved in religious ceremonies, I think, is that water, when you focus intention on it, changes and it causes a change in the way you react to it. That's what makes it the holy water. Uh -huh. and wine in, in, in communion, same thing. I mean, and that's, you know, they say the wine is transformed from from wine into Jesus's blood, as it were, metaphorically, or I don't know, some people believe literally, although that's kind of weird. But in any case, the point being, I think, is that if you look at the world's religions, what you discover is that they all begin because of one person who has a non-local consciousness experience. You know, okay. Jesus is baptized by John and he goes into the desert and meditates and he awakens. Buddha goes up to an ashram to a teacher who teaches him to meditate and he awakens. Sits under Muhammad a tree and there we go. Yeah. Mohammed goes into the sacred cave of Hira. He meditates and he has an experience and he awakens. And so if you look at religions, I mean, what I was interested in is why, is, why does religion exist? Good question. And, yeah. Yes. Why, I mean, why? Why should religion exist at all? And the answer, I think, is that from the beginning back to Neanderthals, and we know this because of excavation of Neanderthal sites, there has been a understanding that there was a dimension, not a dimension, that's because that's a space word. There is a domain of consciousness independent of the physical world. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm with you on that. And all these religions begin because one person who becomes the prophet has a non-local consciousness experience, an experience of this domain. Tells other people about, about it. it. Mm -hmm. And people listen to him and they write it down, sometimes years or even centuries later. And that becomes the scripture for that religion. So when you strip away all of the dogmas that are culturally appropriate and you look at religion not as a not as religion in the sense that it normally that normally is meant but instead as a fundamental recognition that there is an aspect of consciousness that is outside of space-time. So then you look at how religion is practiced. 
Think about this for a minute. All right. You start I, I can't with, wait to hear this story. All right. You start with, there's the sacred place. Sure. The tree, the it's cave. It's a church. It's a synagogue. It's a temple. It's an Etruscan sacred grove. Whatever. Those are all cultural affects. Right? Right. But the commonality is that there's always a sacred place. Now, why is that? Well, we know the answer to that. All right. Lay it on me. And the answer is, we know in remote viewing research that it is easier to see a cathedral than it is a warehouse of the same size. Now, why is that? Remote viewing is the ability to describe person, places, events, objects, from which you cannot know because you are temporally or spatially distant from them. That is, right. the picture I'm going to ask you to describe hasn't been selected yet. And in any case, I'm in one city and you're in another city or you're in another wherever across yeah, the Yeah, and the target's in a third, so, yeah. Whatever. So... Acts of intentioned observation informationally enrich the information architecture physically represented by the cathedral, whereas nobody pays any attention to warehouses. And so when we do research in remote viewing, it is much more likely that you will accurately describe the cathedral than the warehouse. So many, yeah, so the, the people have spent so much time in exactly. altered states of consciousness in that place. Exactly. Exactly. And that informationally enriches the information structure of which the cathedral is the physical manifestation. Somebody thought of it. They designed it. People built it. For hundreds of years, people have been going in and in an altered state of consciousness. Okay, now, then we look at the religious service. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we know, again, experimentally, we know that things which are, the word is numinous, the things which are more numinous are easier to see in remote viewing non-local perception than things which are not numinous. Numinous meaning extra rich in information? Yes, that is precisely what it means. Okay. Particularly when there is a heightened emotional state associated with it. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. Now, now let's look at religious services all over the world. Well, when I started telling you about how uh, religions began, that begin with one person, you will probably have noticed that in every single case, the first thing that this person does is begin to meditate. Mm -hmm. Jesus goes into the desert and meditates and awakens. Buddha goes to the ashram, is taught meditation and awakens. Muhammad goes into the cave has an experience, begins to meditate, and is awakened. 
and you can go on and on. I mean, I'm talking here about long historical religions, not minor cults and the usual, you know. I'm with so, you. Okay. So now we have the sacred space, which is created by the acts of intentioned observation. You go to the service at a fixed time that has been prearranged and you are drawn together and you begin by making a statement of common belief. If you're a Christian, it's the Nicene Creed, mm -hmm. for instance. Yep. Now, what does that do? That begins to create linkage. You look at now research by a, a neurophysiologist named Andrew Newberg, who created something called neurotheology, which is the study of religions from a neuroscience perspective. And what he discovered was that when people chant, drum, dance, sing together, their brains all entrain. That makes a lot of sense. The, the shamanistic services that I've been to, um, they all start that way. You know, there's, yes, of course. there's drumming, because there's chanting, and it goes on freaking forever. But you better be yes. entrained by the time that's done. So what happens is you go to the sacred space, which has been created by intentioned observation. You make the statement of affirmation. I'm joining this group because we all commonly believe the same thing. Then there is a period of dancing, chanting, singing, whatever. Mm -hmm. which causes brain entraining. Then there is a period, forget about the sermons, that's all intellectual stuff, all that. Then there is a period during which some, not all, and not always, of the individuals can have a non-local consciousness experience. Speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing, whatever. Oh, that's what the, okay. I see where you're going. Right. Mm -hmm. Then you have more singing, dancing, whatever to link this together. You hold people in, in healing intention. You pray for them. What mm -hmm. is prayer? It's quieting yourself and focusing intention and you agree to meet at another time in that same place and you do that again and again and again throughout your life and what that does is it reinforces it again and again we now have research which shows if you want to change the way your behavior works it's not willpower it's creating repetitive patterns. That's interesting. I, you know, I was a trainer at the Monroe Institute for 35 years. And oh, I knew Bob Monroe. Yeah, great guy. And, you know, we have something like that where, you know, there's a pattern to what it is that we do and very specific um, uh, vibration patterns that we're in. And, and we, and we do exercises in a certain way. And over that 35 years, 
you can feel the difference when you walk on campus, if you're yes. at all sensitive. Yes, yes. I helped Bob design that in his very early, uh, when I first met him, I went to several of his, literally when they were still in sleeping bags, right, before they built the center. Yep. In any case, uh, a very nice guy. Anyway, exactly. You notice when you go on to the campus, because people have been doing these repetitive patterns again and again and again and again and again, that there is a consciousness which you associate with the place. Mm -hmm. Very much right? so. Now, let's keep going. If you look at scriptures, literally the shape of the letters, or real words versus fake words. A series of experiments have been done in which people were asked uh, uh, to, uh, Gary Schwartz, for instance, did an initial one in which he had real Hebrew words and fake Hebrew words. Okay. That is, they were written in, in uh, Hebrew, but they, they, some of them were real words and some of them were not. And some of them were very old words, and some of them were young words, new words. Okay. And he asked people to, to describe what these words were about. And what he found was the older the word, the more accurate, the, more, the, 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 the old words were better than the young words, or the new words, and the real words were more strongly responded to than the fake words. And this experiment has been replicated in, a, in Chinese, in uh, several languages, and always comes out the same way. The real words are more impactful than the fake words. And if they make letters which look like the language that they're written in. These are obscure languages. Okay. As opposed to real letters, literally the shape of the letter, real letters get a bigger response than fake letters. So if you look at religion, what you see is that it is a construct to make people awaken to the idea that they are more than animated meat. <laughs> animated meat, lovely. Right? Right. And it doesn't matter. The religions are different. One God, several gods, uh, male gods, female gods, whatever the, the cultural and dogma issues, those are different. That's the way people normally talk about religion. We talk about oh, Christian scholars or Hebrew scholars or Hindu scholars. But when you get down to what actually is going on, what you see is these same patterns develop through empirical observation over centuries. And they always are the same ones. It's all the same. Whether you're a Hindu or a Jew or a Christian or a Buddhist, or a Scientologist or whatever. Well, I don't know about Scientology, but anyway, 
these ancient religions because they have been repeated again and again and again across centuries, these same patterns, just as you were developing at Bob Monroe's Institute. Well, I'm thinking the of what Ken, what Ken Ring did, um, professor at the University of Connecticut. Who okay. Studied, who, yeah, he studied near-death experiences, and, and he talks about how the vibration of the experience is there in the printed word. So as you as you read about a near-death experience, you are actually entering into the vibration of that experience and you get it. You get some it's of it. It's not a vibration. The only thing I would correct is it's not a vibration. What would you this call has it? nothing to do. Well, because vibration is a space-time thing. In order oh. for something to vibrate, it has to be in space-time. No, Fair enough. This I'll... is this is you join in informational linkage. Informational linkage. All right. You read it. You're reading a near-death experience. And as you read it and you focus on it, you are linking with the person who had the experience. You are linking not with them personally, I mean, not physically, but in the, the, the non-local domain. Yes that experience, that informational experience, you are doing. It's like doing a Google search. Informational linkage. I like that a lot. It's, um, it, it, and it's been verified for those of us who've had the experience. Um, sometimes you can read about a near-death experience or a shared-death experience, and there's it's like all of the juice has been edited out of it. And it's like that there's just nothing left to it. And others, you read it and you go, that's really close to what what happened to that person. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a there's a visceral sense to that linkage to where they were, what they experienced. Yes. And how they felt matter. about it. It doesn't in, in the non-local domain, space and time are informational enrichers, but they are not limiters. Mm -hmm. I like that. So you can read about a near-death experience that happened a hundred years ago. The oldest near-death experience is in Plato. You can read about it and, and you go, Oh my goodness, that's an authentic description. You just know it. You just know it. Why? Because as you focus your intention, you link informationally because of your intention with the experience. Yeah. Because everything, what, what Edgar Cayce called the Hall of Records, is actually the totality of all the informational architectures created through intention. It's all there. It's all there. So when I have remote viewers, for instance, describe Cleopatra's palace and tell me where it is, that's unknown at the time, Not no one in the world knows where it is, and I have people describe it and describe things that I will find there 
down to sixteenths of an inch. My my. What are they doing? And the answer is, they are holding intention to answer my question, and therefore they access, if they know how to do it, they access the non-local domain where all that information is there. And I just go to the site that they tell me to go to on the map. And I have people dig down or archaeologists dig and find it. So what we are dealing with is information. All this conversation about vibrations and dimensions, those are all space-time words. Mm -hmm. That's, a, that's an important distinction, yes. And they're yes. definitely outside of space-time. Yes, they're not in space-time. And so when you, for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, this is a case I actually studied. A young boy pre-seven, because it's seven, this seems to close down largely. Edgar Casey, for instance, says the soul becomes totally incarnate in that personality at age seven. I, psychologists and psychiatrists have different interpretations, but basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we have a little boy, he's about five years old. And he says in India, and he says that he was killed. He was a moneylender. And he was having an affair with a woodcutter's wife. And the woodcutter caught them. And as he was climbing out the window, the woodcutter who had his axe with him killed him by striking him in the back with his axe. Now, always, is, always a bad plan to. Yeah, bad plan. Bad you plan. know, when you, yeah, have an affair with somebody who's got lots of weapons. <laughs> yeah. Or whose wife. Right. <laughs> when her husband has a lot of weapons. Anyway, there we go. More accurate. Thank you. Yeah. So this kid says, um, and so I was killed. Now, the child, when he's born and still, has keloid tissue on his back like a wound healing like a uh, like you'd had a wound and he has this strange little strip of keloid tissue uh -huh. which turns right nobody knows why he's got it but there he's got it so i contact a group of people in india and this child is saying he comes from this village that nobody in his village has ever even heard of let alone been to and the doctor goes, comes down, gets the child, takes him to the village he said that he came from in his previous life. Okay. As soon as they get him to the edge of the village, he immediately wa walks into the village and walks up to a particular little hut, little house. And um, the woman, an older, much older woman comes to the door. And the boy looks at her and speaks to her and calls her by a pet name. My. The woman immediate, immediately breaks into tears because that was the name that her lover had called her, which nobody knew. How could they? Yeah. And the boy says to her, I've come to get my watch. 
Oh, really? I didn't expect she that. Says, she says, what watch? And he said, well, I uh, hit it when uh, once because of whatever reason. And he goes into the area where she cooks and he pulls out a brick that's in the little cooking area. And there wrapped in a piece of oilcloth is a watch, a pocket watch, not a wrist watch. Yeah, yeah. And when they interview the woman, they say, well, you know, what happened? And she said, oh, I was having an affair. My husband was a woodcutter and he came back early one day and he caught us in bed. And as my lover was trying to go out the window, my husband struck him with his axe and killed him. Confirming everything that's boy has said. Now, where does that kid get that information? How did he know that? This was Informa years earlier. Informational linkage, I think you're going to tell me. That is correct. <laughs> that's right. Now, the key to all of this, of how you do this, is that you remember we go back to how religion started about meditation. Why meditation? Why do they teach meditation in martial art dojos or in Hindu temples or Buddhist monasteries or uh, I don't know, pick whatever you like, any religious gathering? Why do they teach meditation? They call it different things and why? And the answer is because, again, through empirical observation across many centuries, they have learned, humans have learned, dating back, as I say, back before history was even recorded. We just know this from archaeological sites that meditation teaches intention focused awareness. Whether you're using mantras or affirmations or, I mean, you do it in lots of different ways. Everybody, you know, thinks that this is the way you have to do it. No, the research is very clear. It has nothing to do with what religion is involved. The key to meditation is the ability to attain and sustain intentioned, focused awareness. Because when that happens, you open to what religion calls the still small voice. You open to this other aspect of your consciousness, which is the part that is not physiologically based. Most of our time together, most of our experience in life, we're being constantly bombarded by the sensations of our neuroanatomy. It's hot, it's cold, it's dark, it's light, it's smelly, it's not smelly, it's noisy, it's quiet, whatever. That's what most people think of as thinking. But in fact, if you look at people who are known to be creative geniuses, or people who are known to be spiritually, we, we say enlightened, what you find is that they all describe the same thing. I go into this state of consciousness. I f everything quiets down. And I have this sense of a 
greater unity of consciousness. Poincaré says, I walked across the street and I had a vision of how my mathematics should work. Descartes has three dreams in Ulm, Germany in 1619. Einstein says he saw relativity as he was after an illness as he was going around in a canoe. Um, Who did that DNA strand? That came out of a dream too, if I remember right. Yes, too. that's right. The snake Watts, yes. Watson, Watts? No, Watson and um, who won the Nobel. Yeah. Oh, I can see his face, I can't think of his name. Anyway, yes. If you look at these people or you look at famous, historically significant religious enlightened people, for want of a better term. I'm even thinking like Edison used to do a lot of his inventions. Oh, in yes. Medi yes. Meditative state, yeah. Yes, Tesla talks about this. I was walking across the Salk uh, campus with Jonas Salk, and I said, where did you get the idea for the vaccine? And he said, in a dream. It came to me in a dream. Kolka and the benzene ring came in a dream. When you're in an altered state of consciousness, where your normal physiological sense impressions retreat, and you hold a focused intention, you open to this non-local aspect of consciousness, and you get whatever it is you get. If you're a scientist, you get an insight into science. If you're a spiritual pilgrim, you get an insight into consciousness and, and spirituality. If you are uh, a creative artist, you know, Leonardo would stare at a wall and the pattern on the wall because of the water that had dribbled down had created patterns and he would stare at those patterns and have these great insights and do these wonderful paintings and sculptures. So if you look at this over and over and over and over again across the course of human history, regardless of the culture, regardless of the geography, regardless of the time, what you see is that the key is to hold intentioned, focused awareness, which allows you to open to the non-local aspect of your consciousness. And with your intention acting as the Google search term, you have an experience which informs whatever your intention is. I love that. So I need to go back for just a second. Remember we were talking about the chocolate bar and about the wine and how our focused intention would change them. Um, so that's a physical thing. Um, I'm assuming that we can then use our focused intention to change our cultural outlook too. If yes. uh, yes. talk about that. I'm so glad you got into that because that's, that is the other area of my research. I, I've been an experiment. I knew that because I was meditating here in the interview. I just went there. <laughs> there you go. We are linked non-locally. <laughs> yes. About four times in my life, I've been involved with changing history. 
Okay. Sometimes I was just, you know, in the civil rights era, I was just a young kid and my task was basically to show up at demonstrations and get arrested. That would seem to be it. They'd take you to the drunk tank and charge you 25 bucks to get out. And it was mostly to get you off the street. Got it. So that was the 50s and 60s. In the 70s, I was asked to be the special assistant to the chief of naval operations and under a guy named Amber, uh, Elmo Zumwalt and Jim Holloway came after him and I was involved with transforming the American military from the elitist conscription organization that I had been drafted into to an all-volunteer meritocracy that was gender and racially neutral. Big, big objective. Holy smokes. Yeah. In the 80s, I began working to create what we then called citizen diplomacy, which mm -hmm. was to create a connection between the then Soviet Union and the United States in such a way that the Soviet Union would be transformed into a democracy. Now, I can tell you why it failed, but nonetheless, it happened for a few years with Gorbachev. Yeah. And Actually, I was LCA. part of that too. Yeah. So citizen diplomacy, and then of course, the consciousness movement, and consciousness research. So about, well, it's getting on 30 years ago, I began accumulating, looking at all this stuff I'd seen in the laboratory. I thought, Okay, that's what a single individual does. What happens when it happens at a social level? And I happened to read a book about Gandhi. Mm -hmm. And in this book was a transcript of an interview that he had given. A reporter from the Times of India had been sent up by his editor just prior to Gandhi's assassination. And he said, Oh, Gandhiji, Gandhi was up at the at his ashram. My editor asked me to ask you, how did you force the British to leave India? How did you force them to leave and give up their most prized colonial possession? I mean, you remember, the King of England, or the Queen of England was the Emperor. How did you force them to leave? And Gandhi's answer is the key to the whole business. He said, it isn't what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It isn't what we said that mattered, although that mattered. It was the nature of our character, what I would call beingness that led the British to choose to leave India. Now you think about this. Gandhi got independence for India without a war. That he had no matter. troops. He had no official position. He had no money. How did this little man in his dhoti 
get what was then one of the most powerful countries on earth to abandon its most precious colonial possession, to just get them to walk away. And the answer was the nature of beingness. And so I wrote a book called The Eight Laws of Change, which is about how individuals and small groups can do this kind of change. How do you create because we have got to change or we're not going to survive through climate change. And you can already see it happening, right? All right. You just look at the news every day. You can see that unless we change the way we organize our society, we're not going to make it. So how do we do that? Well, I will tell you and, and the people that will listen to this podcast, if they will do this, they can change the course of the election in November. How about that? I'm all ears. Let's do it, Stephen. Every day, this is called the quotidian choice. Every day, you make thousands or hundreds of little decisions. I'm going to buy this toothpaste. I'm going to buy that cat food. I'm going to buy this gasoline. I'm going to buy this clothes, whatever. We do dozens of these little changes all day long, all these little choices. If you want to become an agent of change, you must take this responsibility. You must do research into the things that you choose. And you must make with every choice you make, you must choose of the options that are available to you as you best understand it at that moment of making the choice. Maybe you'll understand differently later, you understood differently before, but at the moment you make this choice, if you choose of the options available to you only the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being as you understand it at that moment, and you make every choice on that basis, and you tell 10 of your friends that you're doing it as a discipline, and that they should invite them to do it, and ask 10 of their friends, between the 14th of September, when we're doing this interview, 2022, and November the 7th of 2022, if the people who are listening to this podcast will make this commitment and tell 10 of their friends they're doing it as a commitment and invite them to do it and choose only that which is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, they will change the course of the election in a positive way. Wow. That's an extraordinary way to end an interview. Yes. I think, I think that um, if we can choose things that are compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, um, that will change the world, and it will change how, how we react to each other, Yes. how we react to the planet and yes. 
and how we react to ourselves, you know? Yes, it will change all our technologies because we will make different technologies. Because we, we have make to technologies make technologies that don't pollute, that don't destroy the Earth's ecosystems, that instead foster them. We will behave differently toward people of different races or different genders or different religions. We will become a different person. And in the process of doing that, we will become agents of change to change the world in a positive way of well-being. Thank you, Stefan Schwartz. This has been a most fascinating interview. I was right, wasn't I? Stefan Schwartz is remarkable. Let's dive into some of the ideas that could use a little more clarity. Just to be clear, these are my viewpoints, but that's why you watch the Afterlife Files, to gain perspective by using more than one lens with which to view this rich information. I appreciated his description of the information architecture being designed and built by intentioned consciousness. Great. Stefan talks about consciousness being fundamental. In my research, Andy Ears talk of a living, vibrating source of all things that is the love of the universe. We're talking about the same thing. I also appreciate his correcting my use of time-space words in describing non-local consciousness. I promise I will forever use informational linkage instead of vibration. Unless, of course, I forget because old habits can die hard. <laughs> but I'll try. Here's a great phrase that Stefan employs. Consciousness is interconnected and interdependent. What does he mean? Andy Ears, who experienced the black light, find that it is consciousness that is source. Source is the vibration, informational linkage from which all things material arise. Therefore, since consciousness exists in all things, all things that are interconnected through that source consciousness. He also says consciousness is interdependent. What consciousness desires, if it's in the soul's best interest, source puts into form. Here's a great metaphor. Think of the replicator in the popular TV and film series Star Trek. Imagine Captain Jean-Luc Picard desires a cup of tea. He walks over and commands the replicator, which looks remarkably like a microwave, by the way. Tea, Earl Grey, hot. Sorry about the impersonation. Then the replicator makes it stow. Stefan is talking about the same mechanism. Consciousness, whether human or non-human, creates an idea, a template for source to follow when manifesting. How do you get better at accessing non-local consciousness? Stefan's research says, learn to meditate. Find a way to attain and sustain intentioned focus consciousness. Binaural beats are incredibly effective at doing this. That's why I use this technology on my albums and in my NDE workshops and retreats. 
I love how he ends our conversation with how to use our understanding of consciousness to better our world, creating individual and cultural well-being with that knowledge. We can choose a culture that is compassionate, life-affirming, and focused on well-being. By the way, I've listed links for Stefan's talk at the Vail Symposium and his TEDx talk on the eight laws of change in the comments below. Okay, we now know that researchers like Stefan Schwartz and those who experience an NDE or SDE come to the same conclusions. Consciousness is causal and fundamental. I find that remarkable. Thank you, Stefan, for giving us another vocabulary for describing the nature of the universe and how that makes a difference and how that brings joy into our lives. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and comment. That would be a lovely thing. You can find the Afterlife Files on all podcast streaming apps. Apple, Google, Spotify, Audible, the lot. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Or pay us a visit at neardeathmeditations.com. Bye now. See you next time. And thank you for joining us at The Afterlife Files.